Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So you should go sit down on your bottom with Mrs. Marla. Uh, hymn 798, stanza 1, 8, and 9. The God of Abram praise, who reigns enthroned above, ancient of everlasting days, and God of love. Jehovah great I am, by earth and heaven confessed, I bow and bless the sacred name forever blessed. The God who reigns on high, the great archangels sing, and holy, holy, holy cry, Almighty King, who was and is the same, and evermore shall be, Jehovah Father great I am, we worship the whole triumphant host Give thanks to God on high Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost They ever cry Hail Abram's God and mine I join the heavenly lays. All might and majesty are thine, and endless praise. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Lord of all power and might, author and giver of all good things, graft into our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and of your great mercy keep us in the same. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, I'm going to move this over here because the verse is long. And I didn't get it all to where you could see it, I think. So Deuteronomy 10, 12, let's speak this together. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. Who is Israel? Who is the person that is being addressed? Is it, yeah, I'm going to say Isaac or Jacob. 
Uh, well, Israel is the name of Jacob. It, his name is changed to Israel, and then all of his children, the 12 tribes and all that, that's Israel uh, as a people. There's Israel as a nation. Uh, and in, from, given the context, of course, being from Deuteronomy, you can assume that contextually, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. But is that all that it is? I mean, any time that, that there's something like, hear, O Israel, or listen up, Israel, or this is the news to you, Israel, is it only applicable to the people of Israel? All believers. All believers, yeah. And is there a way that we could say all believers that ties in with the vocabulary of Israel? Who are the Israelites? At that time, they were yeah, chosen people. You're right. They are the believers. And th that's emphasized by someone like Rahab and some of the others who are brought into Israel, even though they're not Jews. So, but Israel is God's nation or God's people. They were the chosen people, too. Yeah, and what characterizes the people? They are believers. Uh, but now this, this applies this so that when you see Israel, you don't stop and say, oh, well, that was for Israel, but it isn't for me. Well, no, because you are Israel. You're, you're brought in. Because Christ talks about being a child of Abraham, and he said, you know, the Pharisees say, well, we, we are children of Abraham already because we trace our lineage back. And uh, Jesus says, well, that doesn't matter. It's not your lineage that makes you a child of Abraham. You're a child of Abraham by blood, not of man, but of the covenant, of the promise. So whoever is under the blood, whoever trusts in the promise and holds to it, that is a child of Abraham. So you are Israel, which means that this applies just as much to you as it does to Israel because you are all together. What does the Lord your God require of you? To fear the Lord your God, and fear is what? Respect. Yeah, respect. Can you think of something even higher than respect, though? Revere. Revere, yeah. I like revere instead of uh, respect, because you respect lots of people. I mean, you respect your boss, but you don't revere your boss. There's a difference between respecting and revering. Uh, and when you fear the Lord, it is a reverent fear, the same kind of reverence that we, that we offer in the sanctuary. You don't walk into the chancel willy-nilly. You don't behave the way in there that you do out here. You are reverent. So fear the Lord your God. This is important too. Whose God is it? Whose God is he? Yeah, yours. He's your God. Who does he come for? For you. It's not, so, so that it doesn't say fear, oh yeah, and it's up here too as well. Uh, fear the Lord who is the God Almighty. And this is a subtle point, but this is why do we as Lutherans believe and confess in the sovereignty of God? 
Sovereign, that God is sovereign, that he is the most powerful, the biggest, and the best, and above all. Do we confess that? Yes, we do. Now, this is some, a place where we differ from Calvinism because the, the Calvinist, our Calvinist brothers and sisters, emphasize the sovereignty of God above all of the other attributes of God. What is God's primary characteristic? He is sovereign. But if that's God's primary characteristic, then he is impersonal. We're not saying he isn't sovereign, but that's not his primary characteristic because he is your God. He is a God that is for you. So in that sense, then, what is his primary attribute if he is for you? Love. Love, yeah. So that he is your God means he is a God of love. And in fact, you say, well, this is Deuteronomy, and people look at this and say, this is a command, this is all law, this is really hard to bear. But it isn't. This is actually the promise of the Lord. And I'll explain that in just a minute. To walk in all his ways and to love him. And what does it mean to love him? Well, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And why these two? Why heart and soul? Yes, yes, the, the fullness of your being. So that with everything that you are, both body and soul, you love the Lord and serve him completely. Um, walking in all his ways, what are his ways? His commands, the way that he would have you be. To walk in those ways is to submit, which is what every good Christian does, remember? What does faith say? Amen. Faith agrees. When, when the Lord says, do this, faith says, amen. Okay, whatever you say. Um, you do all of this with the fullness of your being because there's not room for you, to, you giving yourself to anybody else. What language does this sound like? There's no room for you to give yourself to anybody else. Because it is. It is marriage. This is marital language. When you get married, you give yourself fully to your spouse. You cannot give yourself in part. It's all or it's nothing. That's the way it has to be. And that's the way it is with the Lord. All or nothing. Because the Lord doesn't want a part of you. He's not content to have a part of you. Just like you wouldn't be content to have only a part of your spouse. That's why the whole idea of an, of an open marriage or an open relationship is laughable. Because it's nothing. You either have the person or you don't. So, you love the Lord your God with the fullness of your being. And you love him and you serve him. 
which really is giving and receiving love, living in love. Um, let's speak this again. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Uh, actually, there's one last thing that I, that I do want to say about this, and that is that the fact that it's stated in this question, what does the Lord God require of you but this? The point of the question, the way it's set up, is to say, this is easy. What does, how is the Lord God a burdensome God? This is all that he wants from you. The point of this is to say, this is very reasonable. And frankly, you're not going to find a better offer for love from anybody else other than this one that the Lord has put on the table for you. This is all that he wants of you. Uh, okay, what does God's word say to wives? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Two big things. The first is submit. What does it mean to submit? Well, remember, love and obedience. Are they different or are they the same? They are the same. To love is to obey and to obey is to love. And as to the Lord, now there is your condition. You don't submit to your husband because he's the great upstanding guy. You submit to your husband for the sake of the Lord and you submit to your husband as the Lord, as you would submit to the Lord. Your husband, ladies, is not always going to be a great, upstanding, kind, caring, compassionate Hollywood husband. And that's just the fact of the matter. And if you enter into your marriage assuming that your, your entire relationship is going to be like a Hollywood thing, you're in for some grave disappointments, I am afraid. Uh, but you're not submitting to your husband for himself being who he is. You're submitting to your husband as to the Lord. Again, this is that whole idea about the fourth commandment. Why do you honor your authorities and obey them and submit to them? Why do you submit to your authorities, to the people who are over you? And why do you, why do, you do what they tell you? Why do you respect their authority? Because it comes from God. Yes. Well, I'm looking for the biblical answer. Yeah, I yeah. suspected that. Yes. <laughs> I have lots to say about non-biblical answers, yeah. but today I'm not in a position to espouse my mm. own opinions, many and varied though they may be. Um, so, you, you are submitting to your husband for the sake of the Lord, and I cannot emphasize that enough because there is this misunderstanding in the world and even in the church that you're submitting to your husband because he's the man. 
You know, it really is that, get me, get me a turkey pot pie, kind of, you do what I say, wife. Why? Because I'm the man. I'm the guy in charge. There was a time when my cousin came to hang out at our house. He came over for a sleepover, and he's maybe two years younger than my youngest sister. So the two of them palled around a lot. He came for a sleepover, and he walked in the door, and he took his bag, and he threw it on the ground at the feet of my sister and said, take this bag up to the room where I am staying. And my dad was there, and my dad said, no, you take that up yourself. And my cousin looked confused, legitimately confused at my father and said, but I am the guest. And uh, you know, that's the attitude that the Lord is not speaking about. That the husband doesn't get to say, go do this, and have his justification be, well, I'm the husband. Are you questioning me? You know, that's, not, that's not the relationship that is supposed to be here. You're supposed to be one flesh. If that's the way you're treating your wife, you're not being one flesh. Um, this is the way the holy women of old, ba 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 The husband is the head of the house, Okay, blah, 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 you know that. You are her daughters, Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right. So, again, like the government, if your husband tells you, bow down and worship this image of me because I am the almighty head of the house, and you say, no, and he says, I'm the head of the house, do what I tell you, are you justified in not doing what he tells you? Yes. Yes. That wasn't, that wasn't supposed to be a hard one. Yes. Yes, indeed. You are justified. If your husband ever asks you to do something ungodly, you are justified in not doing what he tells you. Because to submit to your husband doesn't mean obeying unconditionally. Two different things. Uh, so you... Do what is right. And your husband, conversely, is not in a position of head of the household or husband in order to make you do ungodly things, but in order to promote godliness within you and to increase your godliness and to help you and himself and the entire household to be as godly as you all can be. And any time that he does anything other than that, he is not doing what he is supposed to be doing as husband. <laughs> And do not give way to fear. Now, this is a big one. Um, Saint John writes, perfect love casts out fear. There can be no fear where there is love. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. Are you afraid of Christ when he asks you to do something and submit to him as the church? No, why? Why are you not afraid? Right. Because he loves you and he will never ask you to do anything that is bad for you or that is not going to be for your good. Which, again, this is that whole idea of love and obedience. Well, then that makes obedience, submission, very easy because there is no fear. There is the complete giving of self, the complete surrender. The husband gives, the wife receives, and there is no fear because the husband is doing what he is supposed to do. Does that all make sense? Okay, there's, like I said, there's a lot of weird explanations of this from, sometimes from people that you would really 
um, expect better from that is startling um, and that makes it seem like women are subpar. And that's not at all what the case is. Women are not subpar. Women are par, like on par. Women and men are, are co-equal, okay? but they are different. They are complementary, which means they fit together. One of them isn't better than the other. It's just that they fit together. It's sort of like you know, the two puzzle pieces that both click together. Which one's better than the other one? Uh, which one's better, an apple or an orange? Apples. <laughs> I don't care for oranges. They have a weird texture. It feels like I'm eating an ear. That's my only justification. They taste fine, but anyway. All right, kids, you can go downstairs for Sunday school here. Bill. Uh -huh. uh, reiterated the, husband, the position of husband and wife in a, in a Christian context. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so the president of the Southern Baptist Convention was on something like a, a memorial, like Good Morning America. And, and Katie Couric, who was a known feminist, really was taking him to task. And I remember one of the points she made. Her husband had died of cancer a couple of years before, but they were very close to each other. And she said, we were equals. We were not, uh, he was not over me. He, we were equals. And all the president of the Southern Baptist Convention would say is, that's not the point. But he never did get to the point. He needed you, Pastor Selmeyer, because they would, you would cut her off because she wouldn't let him state what the position of uh, the church was, which is pretty close to where we are, I think. But she she kept coming back to that secular, we're equals, we're, we're the same in the family. Uh, everything, when we buy a car, we, we decide which car it is. He doesn't pick the car. She was totally missing the concept. Yeah. But for being the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he was extremely behind the curve on answering the question. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, because he had a good opportunity, all 20 million people to listen to it, to yeah. make that gospel message there. This is bad language, too, by the way. Uh, are men and women equal? Are they equal? Well, no, they're not equal. What does it mean if something is equal? It means they are the same. Men and women are not equal. To say that men and women are equal says that men and women are interchangeable. Anything a woman can do, a man can do, and anything a man can do, a woman can do. Now that's one of the problems with the feminist movement. It's an ironic problem with the feminist movement, funnily enough, because the feminist movement wants to promote women as being equal to men, and in pushing women so hard to be equal to men, now women have lost everything that makes them unique as women. Because they're so, they hate men, and they're so focused on being equal to men that they want to become what they hate.
That's the irony of it. And, and that's not the point. And that's never been the biblical precedent that men and women are equal. Never. Now, just because I say that they are not equal does not mean that one is superior because that's the other pitfall. The one pitfall is to try and you know, defend the Bible and say, well, you know, it's not misogynistic. It, you know, men and women are really equal, and then you've lost it because you've started using secular language. The Bible never anywhere says that men and women are equal. What it says is that they are complementary. And it is better to be complementary than it is to be equal. Do you see what I'm getting at here? If men and women are equal, then they are interchangeable, and then a man can get pregnant, or a woman can get pregnant, or there's no such thing as a man and a woman, it's just people. Uh, here's a disturbing thing I saw just this morning, actually, on the news. There's new pronouns. I mean, in case, in case you're keeping up, and if you are keeping up, frankly, I don't know how you're doing it, because I can't keep up. But now there are the pronouns frog and bug, too. So, you know, just so you know, if you want to be called, uh, if, if you want to say, well, frog went to the store today to buy frog a dress, or bug went out to McDonald's to buy bug a cheeseburger, now, now you can be frog or bug, too. So, you know, we want to be inclusive. We want to let everybody in. But if everything is interchangeable, then nothing, nothing is itself. If a man is interchangeable with a woman, then what's the distinction? If you're equal, what's the distinction? There isn't one. They are, <laughs> they are complementary. They fit together. They each have strengths and weaknesses, but they don't, they are not the same. And that's, I mean, let's not even talk about biology for a minute it's pretty apparent that men and women are different. Men sit down and have a conversation with a woman, and you'll find that they are a lot different than you are, and vice versa. Women try to have a conversation with a man, and you'll find out they, they are way different than you are. They don't think the same way at all. But somehow, despite the fact that they are so very different in some of those avenues, they work well together because they're complementary. And it's almost like one doesn't work as well alone as they would work with the other one. <gasps> what? You don't say? You mean that there is actually a sense that men and women are supposed to belong together like, like they make a full person when they come together? Well, wow. What a novel concept. I'm glad I thought of it. Yes, my wife. Little bit of chlorine never hurt anybody.
Yes, yes, so they're complementary. Here's a, a funny story. My youngest sister, she was in college and she, she was in nursing school and was required to take a bunch of weird ideological classes, political ideology classes. One of them was on gender and sexuality and all that business and identity. And they had this weird guest person who came in and she said something like, if you got married, women, and your husband asked you to make them a sandwich, what would you say? And my sister raised her hand and she said, what kind? <laughs> and this woman just like lost it. Why on earth would you blah, blah, blah? She said, well, because he's my husband and I want to take care of him. And if he's hungry, I'll make him a sandwich. What's the big deal about making a sandwich? And the woman had no answer to the simple question. Well, what's the big deal about making a sandwich? You know, the funny thing is, so there is a comedian and I, I in a collar, can neither, cannot condone him, uh, named Bill Burr, who is very... Uh, He's a, he's a Bostonian. He's very angry. He has some uh, blue language. But he tells a story about moving and putting stuff together in his garage. And he said, the best thing my wife ever did for me was on that day she came out with a sandwich, a bag of chips, and an ice cold beer. She said nothing, she gave it to me, she left me there, and she gave me a whole hour with nothing but my sandwich, my chips, and my beer. And I just sat there and I ate. And he said, I'm not trying to be misogynistic here, but sometimes the only thing your husband needs is for you to take care of him and then leave him be. And that's what he wants the most. Said, what's wrong with making a sandwich? There's nothing misogynistic about that. And my sister, I just remember her coming home. I don't know what the big deal was. She made like a big deal about, well, your husband asked you for a sandwich. Why wouldn't I do it? Yeah, okay. See, so the idea that you are uh, husband and wife, that you are together, and that you are complementary within this marriage means that each of you is giving and receiving love. And sometimes uh, giving and receiving love is you sitting down and watching a chick flick that you really don't want to watch, or going out to buy food to, to meet the pregnancy cravings, or whatever it is. And sometimes it is you uh, going and making your husband a sandwich, or bringing him something, or helping him do something. It's just something like that. And neither one of you has the right in a situation like that to say, well, I don't want to do because it's, it's the full giving and receiving of self. Well, yeah, it'd be my joy to watch this movie that I hate with you even though I, even though I know that you love it. And the reason I'll do it is because I know that you love it. Because it's not about me, it's about me caring for you. That's the whole deal. This, the problem with the secular idea of marriage is that marriage really isn't something about the other person. It's still something I'm doing. Why do I get married? Because I like that person. Because I think that he's funny. Because I think he's a good cook. Because I think he's attractive. Because this, because that, because this. But, what, but who's always the focus and who is always the judge? It's me. What are the characteristics that I am looking for? What do I want to get out of my marriage? That's, and that's the problem, is that secular, the secular idea of marriage has nothing to do with self-sacrifice, of the giving or even of the receiving of self. It just has to do with two individuals that come together legally, get a tax break, and then both individually try to fulfill themselves individually. 
Well, and you know, no wonder there's so, there, there's so much infidelity and divorce in the culture now. And you have couples that get together that can't even stay together for a year. You keep, if you keep up with your People magazine, you know. <laughs> you, you keep up with some of that celebrity stuff is just garbage. You have these $10 million weddings and then within six months they're divorced. Why? Well, because it's about the self. But the world can't tolerate the idea that from the wife's side that she would live for another and that she would submit to another. And the world can't tolerate the fact that a man would live for another person in a self-sacrificing way because men are supposed to be the domineering patriarchal types. And that breaks the mold on both accounts that the woman is not putting pants on and bossing folks around, wearing her pants suit in the office, and that a man isn't being domineering and demeaning to a woman. You know, Christianity breaks the mold in how we look at men and women and the relationship between them and how they interact specifically in the realm of marriage. The world just can't handle it. Like the, the, like the woman who can't handle the idea of a woman saying, what kind of sandwich would you like, dear? Or a crowd that boos the comedian off stage because he says, you make your if, if your husband looks like he's really hungry, just make him a sandwich. Don't wait for him to ask you. Just try and take care of your husband. I mean, don't you think that stuff like that should be sort of simple? Like if you're really living within a marriage, taking care of your wife, you know when your husband or your wife is down or something's wrong. When, when, you, when it gets to the point where you say, what's wrong, it's not because you're asking, is there something wrong? It's because you know that there is something wrong. And then you want to take care of them. Why? Because you love them. You as a husband, when your wife comes home and, and you know that something is wrong, uh, what do you want to do? I'll tell you what I want to do. Because I feel like I'm probably representative of most men. I want to fix the problem. What's the problem? Give it to me straight, I'll fix it for you. What do you need? What can I do? What's going to make it better? I want to fix it. I want it to go away. Why? Because I want you to be happy. Now, what the world thinks is that, oh, why, do, why does that man want to fix the problem? Well, because he's not getting what he wants. Boy, you're really, you're really annoying uh, when you're upset. And I'd really like for you not to be annoying me, so I'll fix the problem just to so get off my back already. But why is it so hard to look at it the other way? Why is it so hard to look at it as something that's loving? Hey, why do I want to fix the problem? Because I care about you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the fact that I want to give myself completely to you, and frankly, that I have within marriage. I'm not my own, and I don't live for myself. I live for you. And likewise, you know, wife doesn't live for herself. She lives for her husband. That is the bottom line of what the relationship is as prescribed biblically. Basically, that husband and wife do not live for themselves, they live for the other. And then, given the fact that one of them is a man and one of them is a woman, how is it that they live for the other? The man lives by looking over, by providing, by uh, giving. The wife loves by receiving by letting her husband love him and making sure that her husband lets her love him too. That part is reflective of my marriage because I 
am bad at letting my wife love me? You can ask her, she'll say yes. It's no secret. Because sometimes she yells at me and says, just let me love you! Which, you know, people need to hear every now and then. You don't get to set conditions on how people love you. People will love you the way that they're going to love you. You don't get to tell them, no, love me this way instead. Or worse, don't love me at all right now. You don't ever get to do that. Yeah, I'd go and talk with Katie Couric. <laughs> I just, I don't like those talk shows because it, I, I like to watch debates and I like to listen to both sides. And part of that is because it's entertaining to me because I like to be an argumentative person. When my brother and I get together, we'll fight about anything and everything just for the fun of it. And we'll, we'll keep going until the argument gets so ridiculous it falls apart and we both start laughing or somebody gets sick and tired of hearing us argue and yells at us and tells us to stop. In fact, one year for Christmas, my brother got a, a, a board game that is basically you putting a card down and then everybody else putting a card down and then you all arguing about whose card is the best card and then whoever wins the argument is the winner. That's it, the whole game is about arguing. And I told Carolyn about that game and she said, I'm having a panic attack just thinking about playing that game. <laughs> so I like to watch those debates, but they irritate me often because it's not a debate. It's, it's one person who thinks that they're right that then wants to preach to another person and have a person of a, dif a differing viewpoint come on so that they can lecture that person about why that person is wrong. And then it's no fun. One person does all the talking, and it's typically the person I don't really want to be listening to that does all the talking. So, anyway, that's sort of a long answer to the, the issue of men and women and their roles and why they are the way that they are. It's not, it's not misogynistic. I remember talking in, uh, in college, so I have, a, I have a minor in classics, you know, so I did a bunch of classes about Greco-Roman history and literature and, and poetry and the arts and, and all that stuff. It was really fun. But we were in this class on mythology, Greco-Roman mythology, and we were on the women myths. And uh, we again went to this discussion group and they had Pandora's box, you know, Pandora's box, you know that story. And then they said, now, we're going to do comparative literature. We want you to read this and then read the, the biblical account from Genesis 3 about how woman caused all the problems and then talk about what's wrong with that viewpoint. And you know, of course, Pandora's box, women, woman is sent to man as a punishment Pandora is dumb as a sack of hammers. And the gods send her there because she's beautiful, so they know that the man's going to love her, because how can he help himself? She's gorgeous, but she's so dumb. And those dumb men don't care about a woman's intelligence. They only care about what she looks like. And then they give her this box and say, no, don't open the box. And she says, oh, I'm so dumb. I want to know what's in that box. And she opens it up and it causes all the problems. And then you say, you women ruin everything. You can't drive right. What's the matter with you? That was a joke. You know, like, why, 
Why was Helen Keller such a bad driver? Because she was a woman. <laughs> okay. So, you know, women are the root of all the problems in the world. What's the matter with those women? And it all goes back to Pandora, that dumb woman who did what she wasn't supposed to do. And what's the point of women on earth? To be a constant pain in the rear, a constant thorn in the side to us men. And then what does your culture look like? How does your culture reflect that? And this, is not, um, this is not theory, by the way. This is truth. Right, women were not people. They weren't even humans. Just like I, I said last week in the Oresteia, um, the, the god Artemis defends, uh, not Artemis. Yeah, Artemis. He, I don't know the Latin names, Carolyn. I know the original names. Uh, <laughs> Artemis defends, it's not Artemis, Artemis is the girl, what's her brother's name? The one with the bow, he's the sun and music one. Rats. Anyway, he, he defends Orestes in court and he says, it's okay for him to kill his mom. She's just a woman, am I right? What's she good for? Pumping out babies, that's it. Just a woman. So that attitude is pervasive in the culture. The Greek mythology is born from the culture. They have the mythology as an explanation of why their culture is the way it is. So why do we treat women the way that we do? Well, because of Pandora, of course. So then, now that you look at the biblical account, oh, that dumb woman. Don't eat the fruit. Okay. I Dumb, dumb, dumb women. Only what's the problem there? Yeah, Adam's there with her. Who's the one that gets in trouble? Adam. Who's the one that Paul says causes the fall? Adam. It's not the woman, it's the man. Uh-oh. Take yourselves down a peg, gentlemen. <laughs> Wasn't the women, it was the men. It was man who caused the fall. Man abdicated his duties. He did not do what he was supposed to do and for his wife, and he did not hold to the word of God. So I remember sitting in this discussion, and we're going to talk about how misogynistic all these cultures are, you know, some blue-haired hippie liberal arts chick. Never been outside of academia a day in her life. Let's talk about misogyny in the Bible because the Bible is just reflective of a wider culture that hates women. And I just said, well, where's the man? It says that she turned and gave some to her husband. It never says she ran off to give some like she ran off to find him while he was doing his good manly duties and working like he was supposed to. It doesn't ever say that. He was right there with her. And I said, what about all the other stuff in the Bible commenting on that when it talks about the man being the one who's responsible for all of that? Why, why is Jesus the greater Adam? Why don't we talk about the greater Eve? 
if Eve's the one that caused the trouble, wouldn't we want Christ to be a woman to redeem, you know, redeem the woman? Who's the, who's the, why, is she, why is he the greater Adam? Like every, because it's all about the man. Every other myth in, in all these cultures has it backwards. Christianity, the, myth, the, the mythos of the Bible, the biblical narrative is the only one that has it the correct way. Everything else is backwards. Everything else is topsy-turvy. The relationship between men and women as it's expressed in all other mythologies through culture are a complete farce. It's the negative of what the Bible presents. And I said something like that and everybody was just slack-jawed. I, I think I said something like, don't try and quote the Bible if you're not going to look at the whole Bible. You can look at individual myths of creation, but you can't look at the individual passages of the Bible and pull them out and then just start commenting about them as if nothing else exists throughout the rest of Scripture. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I just, yeah, that irritated me. Well, this is misogynistic. The Bible is not misogynistic. The Bible is one of the least misogynistic books that you can find. Just look at Jesus. Read the whole Gospel of Luke and then still tell me that it's misogynistic. Who does Jesus go to? First, after his resurrection. To the women. He doesn't go to Peter, big boy Peter. He goes to the women. Oh, it's misogynistic. Bill, did you have a... Oh, okay, I, I just saw your hand out of the corner of my eye. Okay, Carolyn. Yeah, that's right. Who runs away from Jesus? It's the men. Who are the ones that stay with Jesus? It's the women. <sighs> you know, this is a great piece of evidence, by the way, for why you can't actually understand the Bible apart from the church. Anybody can read the Bible, but unless you're looking at it with the, the lenses of, hey, this is all about Christ, then you're never going to understand it. You're never going to get anything out of it. It's sort of like this. Oh, the Lord said that the Israelites were supposed to kill all the Canaanites, but I thought he was a God of love. Why would he do that? I can't believe in a God who would advocate for bloodshed. It's in the Bible. Look it up. He said, kill them all, not a living thing, women or children. What do you say to that? But why believe in a God who said, go kill people? I mean, I'm just pushing you on this. I know what the answer is. But I want, you to, I want you to get there the right way. I don't want to just give it to you. I want you to see this dilemma and examine it and see what the issue is. Why would God advocate for such bloodshed? Why, can, why is there a psalm where it says, Lord, this is the last verse of the psalm, Lord, I pray that you would dash the heads of their infants against the rocks. Why is that okay? By the way, that one was left out of the hymnal. Hmm. I can't imagine why. Well, the Canaanites were corrupting 
Okay, there you go. So therefore he says, we'll take care of that problem. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's the thing. God hates evil. And I've, I've used this example before, but there was a father whose daughter in public was being inappropriately touched by some strange gentleman, and he happened to catch the guy, and he beat the living daylight out of that man. And then, of course, all the news headlines were about how violent he is. What a terrible thing that he did this. Look at this unhinged, out-of-control man just beating up a guy in public. That was the spin on it all. And the question is, why did he do it? If that was your dad, would you be proud of him for doing that? Yes. I would be, but why? why? He advocates for bloodshed and violence. Why? I thought he was supposed to be a god of love, a dad of love. Because he's protecting his child. You can't look at what love does to its enemies and then say it's not loving because it doesn't love everyone the same. The father, well, the father didn't love that guy who touched his daughter. Yeah, well done, Sherlock. Power of deduction is stunning. <laughs> of course the father doesn't love that fella because he loves his daughter and that person harmed his daughter and there is no wrath like the wrath of love that goes up against someone who has harmed the beloved. That's the picture of God. What does it mean that God is a loving God? Well, it doesn't mean that God is a kind God. Now, is God kind? Oh, sure, yeah. But is, the, is his attribute of love primarily illustrated in kindness? No, it is not. He defends his people, which means that just like he promised, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Anybody who touches you, I'm after them. I give them the old one-two. You know, like two hits. Me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Okay? That's love. Uh, there was another story about a father whose son was on life support in the hospital, but who was recovering. This was in England. And the English doctors all decided, with no consent from family, because they have the authority to do that, we're just going to, he's not recovering quickly enough, we're just going to pull him off everything. So the father came to the hospital with a gun and barricaded himself in the son's hospital room and threatened to shoot anybody that entered into that room. And while he was in there, his son woke up, came out of the coma, and was able to be taken off of life support. The father saved his son's life. What happened to the father? He went to jail. Was the father a good father or a bad father? Yeah, you'd say he's a good father, he, but he broke the law. But he threatened people. He took a gun to a hospital. What's the matter with a fellow like that? 
You went after his boy. You were going to kill his child. No father's going to stand by and let you kill his child. That, by the way, is why the only thing more despicable than a woman who advocates for abortion is a man that advocates for abortion. That is the most despicable, slimy, unmanly thing in the world. So, why is it that God mandates that the Israelites kill the Canaanites? Because they are their enemies, because they're attacking them, because they're causing them harm, because they're corrupting them, because they're polluting them. Why do you tell your kids, I don't want you hanging out with so-and-so? Every time you hang out with them, you come home with bad habits. I don't want you hanging out with them anymore. Oh, you parents, you're so unfair. Shouldn't you let your kids be able to hang out with whoever they want? Why do you tell your kids, I don't want you going to see this movie? Oh, you stupid, stupid, ignorant, unfair parents. You're depriving your kids. What's the matter with you? Why do you do it? Because you love them. Why do you punish your kids? Yeah, because you love them. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think any parent in here says, oh boy, I get to ground you again? Yeah! Oh man, it's time for a spanking? Oh, I love dishing those things out. All right, go get the belt, go cut a switch. Boy, this is my favorite part of the day. What father wants to come home after work and then have his wife say, all right, tell your father what you did. I mean, you come home and it's like, oh, I don't want to do this to you. This is me speaking as a father. What in the hey-ho is the matter with you kids? What's the matter with you? Do you think parents like doing that? We hate doing that. I mean, I guess I'm speaking for myself, but I don't like. You don't like having to ground your kids. Kirsha didn't go, she didn't get to go play outside last night for vacation Bible school. Instead, she had to sit inside. Why? Well, because the last two nights she was a bad girl. The, the two nights prior, she was a bad girl when she went outside and she didn't listen and she threw a fit when it was time to come inside. So the third night we said, all right, that's it. You don't get to go outside tonight. Do you think, do you think that parents want to do stuff like that? Is that fun? Are we, are we so, what is it? Are we so masochistic that we like to inflict pain or to I impose hardship on the lives of children? No, absolutely not. But we do it, your parents do that because they love, because love is more than kindness. You love your children, and part of loving them means that you punish them because you want them to be good, upstanding people. Why do you want them to be good, upstanding people? Grow up to be good, pious, Christian, devout, responsible men and women. <laughs> sure. But it's because you love them and you care about them. You want to set them up for the best success that they can have in life. You want to teach them morals and values. You want to teach them about the things that matter. You want to teach them the difference between right and wrong, just like God wants for you. Because what's wrong is not good for you. Yes, it sucks to have a bedtime. But you know what sucks more? 
You staying up all the time, as late as you want every night, and then having to drag yourself around the day, and being unsuccessful, and having poor health, and all of that, simply because you're staying up late playing Farm Simulator on the Xbox. <laughs> but I'm not looking at anyone in particular. <laughs> okay. Yeah, having a bedtime isn't the most fun thing in the world, but it is something that is good for you. Yeah, eating your vegetables. Well, who wouldn't want to have sweets instead of eating vegetables? I've got quite the sweet tooth. If I could just have a whole sweet meal, oh, I would, and I'd love it. But it's not good for you. There's things that are good for you, and there's things that are bad for you. And the Lord always wants the things that are good for you. He wants you to stay away from the things that are bad for you. Why are the Ten Commandments there? Because God wants you to be a circus animal. Jump, monkey, jump! No. They're not arbitrary. It's because he wants you to know the difference between good and bad, and he wants you to stay away from what is bad because it's not good for you. The example that I use is, I don't want you to go and stick your nose in a meat slicer. Maybe you might have the time of your life putting your nose into a meat slicer, and I frankly don't care about whether you have a good time or a bad time doing it. I care about whether you do it or not because I know that objectively that is something that is bad for you. And it's not that I'm trying to squash your fun, it's that I'm caring for you, and you are more important to me than your fun is. And that's the way the Lord operates too. So this loving God cares about his people so much that he does not want their enemies to triumph over them. You know, here's the other side of that question. Did the Israelites, uh, hold on, let me back up. Was the command enforced to kill absolutely every Canaanite? And I'm, not, and I'm not talking about, you know, the fact that they spared some and then intermarried. That's not, I'm not talking about that. What I want you to think about is, let's think about Jericho. What's the command of the Israelites for Jericho? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she said to kill everybody, including the women and children, and even the the animals, the livestock, nothing. Well, did they kill everyone and everything from Jericho? No. Oh, no, they broke the law. But did they break the law at Jericho? Did they break the law at Jericho? Did they not do what God commanded? Did they disobey his command? Because they spared some. You got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> those are good odds. I'd bet on those odds. It would seem like they It sure would seem like it, wouldn't it? But did they? That was a non-committal answer. <laughs> That's why I'm pushing, I'm pushing you. Yeah, no. You're right! What'd you say? She said, no, they didn't. The Lord commanded that they kill everybody. They didn't kill everyone, and somehow they didn't break the command of the Lord because they spared Rahab and Rahab's family there at Jericho. Well, what's the deal about Rahab and her family? They were protected, but what, why? 
Because they had faith. Yeah, because they believed in the promise of the Lord. Because they, they trusted in the God of Israel. Well, is the Lord going to go in and slaughter the people that believe in him? No. So when they go into Canaan, or even from Egypt, do you think that, let me just pose this hypothetical question to you. Do you think that when the Israelites walk out of Egypt, there are no Egyptians that come with them? No, there are Egyptians Exactly. There are Egyptians that come with them. So even as they're walking out of Egypt, there are people that are not Jews that are with them. Why are they with them? Because they have faith in the promises of God. Why does Rahab join Israel and end up being part of the lineage of the Christ child? She weren't no Jew because she had faith in the promises. You know, all of this, by the way, there are a lot of non-Jews and a lot of very, very, very desperate sinners in the lineage of Jesus, and that's for a reason. Because it is a confession of the truth that we just talked about a little while ago, that being a child of Abraham doesn't come by lineage. And I say lineage and not blood, because it does come by blood, but not the blood of Abraham, by the blood of the covenant. All who are under the blood of the covenant are children of the Lord. This is why, by the way, excuse me, the whole idea of mission work to the Gentiles is not actually a foreign concept. You know, Peter says, oh no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. And the disciples, you know, the Samaritan woman comes and the disciple, or the Canaanite woman comes, and the disciples say, ah, get rid of her, Lord. She's screeching out after us. She's annoying. Send her away. And he says, yeah, well, it's not good to give the bread to the dogs. And, and they say, yeah, that's right. You show her, Jesus. You show her. Put her in her place. That's the attitude. Well, we don't go to these people. We don't associate with those types. But the reality is you always have. At least the Lord always had. Oh, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Yeah, but he always has. Pastor, weren't there Egyptians spreading blood over the doorposts? Yes. Yeah, anyone who has faith in the promises of God. And, uh, you know, you look at the plagues, there are already in Egypt the uh, Isra Egyptians that are pleading with Pharaoh, this is the God of Israel. You, you can't beat him. You need to stop. You need to let them go. The, their God is the true God. Or look at something like Babylon with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, do you think that you know, after the king, the incident with the fiery furnace, and the king says, oh, there is only one God, and that God is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you think then that all of a sudden people just go, oh, well, all right, whatever, but I'm just going to keep on worshiping my gods. I'm sure some of them do. But again, we had, we had mentioned this a long time ago. The magi that come from the east, how, why do they care about a star? Why do they care about a savior? Because they too believe in the promises of God. Well, they're from the east. They're not Jews. No, they're not. But they are children of the promise. It's better to be a child of the promise than it is to be a Jew. Many Jews are, ch are children of the promise, but to be a Jew doesn't necessarily mean to be a child of the promise. 
That's the thing. So God takes care of all of his children. He doesn't slaughter all of the Canaanites. Many of them end up, you know, many of the pagans end up becoming children of the promise. Rahab is a great example. Ruth is an example. Ruth was a pagan who was brought in from a cursed nation through marriage and then ended up becoming a very faithful woman and was the grandfather of King David. Well, boy, howdy, look at that. See? Uh, okay, any last minute questions? Yeah. Yes, I believe so. Uh, possibly. It, de it depends. There's, that's a big historical question because there's not just one by that name. So you line it up and then... But I think, if I remember correctly, I think Christian lore at least says that he probably did. And I tend to trust Christian lore. Christian lore also says that the wife of Pontius Pilate became a Christian too. So, there, I, I mean, I'm not there to, to say yes or no, but if it comes down and the lore is continued to be passed down, then I, I give it the credit it's worth. So, All right, we'll see you at the altar. <laughs>